0: <clears throat> turn please to mark in chapter 9 mark chapter 9 i want to begin reading with verse 33 i may skip a little bit on the way around but i want to begin with verse 33 finding that let me make one announcement that i forgot and that is to our university students that uh, a i did say welcome but it's certainly welcome we've missed you but secondly open swim a uh, time of worship will be here tomorrow night at nine so for students open swim tomorrow here at nine Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, now we come to this which is your word and pray that you would, in fact, remove all of our dullness and darkness that might uh, reside within us because of sin. And, Father, that you would expel that by way of your light and that this light would burn uh, deep within us, that we would really hear, really hear, and desire with our whole hearts to follow after Christ I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They, and the they there is Jesus and his disciples, the twelve. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What, are you, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. And he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms he said to them whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me Then verse 42 and if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck If your hand causes you to sin cut it off It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out And If your foot causes you to sin cut it off It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace. With each other. Now, we've been in this passage for a, a little while. Those of you who are returning from being away in the summer, I suppose, may not find it surprising that we're still in the Gospel of Mark. It's only been since October. And so we're moving as quickly as I think we can. But I think that this particular passage is a significant one, not necessarily more significant than other passages of Scripture. We must be careful that we don't make one passage more significant than the other, and thus have a Bible within the Bible, that is, have certain key verses and favorite verses that we like and we refer to all the time, uh, and then skip all the others. And That gives us a rather truncated uh, Christian life if we're not considering thinking through uh, living out the whole of Scripture. But there are some passages that seem more comprehensive than others. That is to say, they seem to include in them uh, a bigger glimpse greater instruction of the whole of the Christian life. And, and I think, I pray I'm following God here, um, I think this is one of them. Because in this particular passage, we're seeing a very, very deep theme in the Christian life. And it begins over in verse 33, which is why I read that again, uh, to set this up because it's, it's there that the disciples of Jesus are arguing amongst themselves about which among them is the greatest. And Jesus comes to them and says, if you want to be great, If you want to be great, then you must be last. You must be the least of all in the sense that you must be the servant of all. That's what it really means to be great. Because, you see, what Jesus is calling these particular twelve to, and us as well, he's calling them to be disciples, to follow him. And a disciple is one who learns from another, is discipled by another. When I, uh, back in my former life, not in the Shirley MacLaine sense, but uh, in my former uh, profession, you could tell, I was an academic economist, and you could tell uh, who followed whom, Who discipled whom in that particular discipline, like you can in many disciplines. If you were a Keynesian, for instance, you were a follower of John Maynard Keynes, and all you needed to know was that someone was a Keynesian, and and you could understand where they were coming from and what they would say. Same being true if you were someone called a monetarist. You knew that you were a disciple of Milton Friedman, and thus you would follow his particular prescriptions uh, for the economy and so forth. And, And you can see that in athletics, you can see that in parenting, who's your... Mentor, as a parent, and who do you follow, and so forth and so on. And so Jesus is saying uh, to follow me, to be my disciple. If you want to be like me, because you see, Jesus was the servant. In fact, the key verse in the Gospel of Mark, we haven't even gotten to the key verse in the Gospel of Mark yet. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, key verse in the Gospel of Mark, it's in chapter 10 and verse 45. This really sums up all that Mark is trying to convey to us about Jesus. In his writing, and he writes this Jesus speaks this. He quotes him This is Jesus speaking for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is to say, Jesus came to serve. He came to serve his Father, to bring his Father glory, and amazingly so. He came to serve us. He came to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. He came amazingly to express his love through becoming a servant, the servant. We, we saw this in John chapter 13 a couple of weeks ago when we had the picture of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, that meal we call the Last Supper, and we saw Jesus humble himself, that is disrobe literally, disrobe the outer garments that gave him some some physical dignity, if you will, disrobe down to the point Of his undergarments so that if you had walked in at that moment in time and didn't know who everybody was and didn't know what was going on you would have looked and said who's the slave because that's exactly the appearance of Jesus at that moment in time he was the slave he had stripped himself down of any outer garments that would give him any dignity or say oh you're one of the ones who should be around the table and he stripped himself down to be the slave and then he did what a slave does which is to wash their feet and then of course The servanthood of Jesus, Jesus serving-ness, if we could create a word like that. Jesus serving them and serving us happened most dramatically, most supremely on the cross. He became, at that point, the servant of all. My call to worship this Sunday is one I probably use a half a dozen times a year because it speaks so clearly of Jesus. It's in Philippians in chapter 2. And it says, about Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. That is to say, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, could have at any moment in time grasped a hold of that which was rightly true of him, that which was rightly his, honor and glory. But to become a servant, he humbled himself and he gave up that grasp to glory. Celebrities. I don't know what it's like to be a celebrity, but celebrities say... That they don't like always being noticed when they're in public so sometimes they wear disguises. I don't really believe them. I think they like being noticed in public especially at some point in time. I mean could you imagine you're having a bad day everything seems to be going against you and you're Michael Jordan so you go to the mall. I mean you get kind of pumped up at the mall if you're Michael Jordan I suppose. Or you're in a restaurant and you forget your wallet. It's really nice to say, take off your funny nose, I'm Michael Jordan. Uh, People will help you, people will know you at that point in time. But we have to understand that when Jesus, the very Son of God, was on earth, he could have at any moment in time said to anybody, Hey, stop and give me 20 praises, worship me, glorify me, because I'm the very Son of God. But people walked by Jesus as if he was simply another guy. That was it. Isaiah said there wasn't anything about him that would draw attention physically to him. He didn't grasp the glory that was his, his, but he humbled himself. And Paul goes on to say, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is to say, it's humbling enough for God to become limited in the sense of a human nature also. Divine nature, human nature. But then, not only did he humble himself as a man, he didn't come as an honored man. He didn't come as a prestigious man, even. Even though he was God that is supreme, he emptied himself to the degree of his glory that he became on the bottom of men, of created humanity. And he humbled himself even unto death, Death on a cross, which was the worst kind of death. It was the most embarrassing kind of death. It was not only difficult physically, but it was difficult, it was embarrassing socially. That it hurt in every kind of way. And so that Jesus was derided as this man on the cross. And so his humility, he was an utter servant to serve, his sacrifice. he sacrificed his own dignity, he sacrificed his own glory, he sacrificed his own life And so Jesus says to these disciples, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, then you must become the last, the servant of all. That is to say, you must become like me. And see, when Jesus served, he served as one who did humble himself. He made himself lower than even everyone else. And not only that but he served the least of us. That is to say, he served those who were his very enemies. He served those who had rejected him. When he went to the cross, no one seemingly was embracing him, was for him, was standing up for him. He had been rejected by even those closest to him. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he humbled himself and served even those who were against him, even those who were his enemies, what he refers to as the ungodly, those who had rejected him. And he served them, and he served the least of them out of love, that is to say, even still with joy. The Bible says it was with the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. So he did it in love. It wasn't simply cold, hard, serving duty. It was love. Cold, hard, serving duty. You can do without joy, but you can't love without joy. And he received joy in the midst of of all of this service and so he calls us to emulate him he calls us to be his disciples he calls us to learn from him he calls us to follow him because you see being his disciple is the guts of the gospel when Jesus sends out his disciples he gives them instructions and many of you've memorized this it's in Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 notice what Jesus says he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he says, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is saying the gospel's job through you, what the gospel does is make disciples of me. It makes followers of me. And so if you wanted to get a progress report on the early church from these apostles of Jesus, you could simply have a line that says, Disciples! That is to say, how many? Are any new ones being made? And are they maturing? You could have classified them as those who are saved or those who believe. But in the words of Jesus at this point, it's disciples. He's making disciples. He's saying, I want you to baptize them. That has identified them with me. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, I want them to be identified with the Father who saves, who chooses, who elects, who chooses those who will be saved. I want you to identify them with the Son that is the one who saves them. And I want you to identify them with the Holy Spirit that is the very one who applies this work of salvation in their life. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Why? Because I want them to be my disciples. I want them to follow me, no one else. I want them to follow me. I want them to obey everything that I've commanded. I want people to look at them and say they belong to Jesus. They are Jesus' disciples because of how they live, what they believe, how they act, how they speak, how they treat each other, and all of that. A couple of weeks ago I made mention of the fact that the Bible says that we are predestined by God to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is our destination, as believers, is that God is working in such a way is to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. He'll never make us divine, we can never be divine, but to conform us to the perfect character of Christ, the perfect human nature of Jesus. That's what he's doing in us. He's conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. Therefore, if you don't like Jesus... You don't want to be a Christian. That is to say, if you don't like the fact that he's kind and he's compassionate and he's forgiving and he's gentle and he's humble and he serves, then you don't want to be a Christian because Christians are those that God is at work in to make them like that, to make them like Jesus. And so if you like Jesus, if you love Jesus, then be a Christian. Trust him. Follow him and know that your destination is to be like him. And a day will come, the scripture says, that we will see him and we will be like he is, be as he is, pure. That's our destiny. So Jesus says, I want you to to serve me. And this is no light matter. This is a very significant matter. So significant, in fact, he says, that when you serve others in my name... You serve others so that I'm glorified, so that I get the credit. You serve others, you humble yourself, you serve others. Then it's like welcoming God himself. And not only that, he says it's so significant that if you cause one of these ones I love to stumble, to sin, you'd be in better shape if I tied a millstone around your neck and threw you into the sea. That would be a better option. Frankly, having a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea... Is not good that's not a good option that's not something that you would aspire to He says that's better than causing one of these little ones to stumble in fact he says I want you to be so sensitive to these matters so concerned about these things that if there's anything in your own life that causes you to sin I want you to get rid of it even if that thing is of such value to you as your own foot or your hand or your eye and again obviously Jesus is speaking figuratively there don't come back next week Some self-imposed amputation. Other than spiritual. Yes, your hand is valuable, but there's something more valuable than even your own hand. It's being a disciple of Jesus, following him. If there's anything that's keeping you from that, get rid of it. Your foot is, is of great value to you, but if there's anything in your life that's keeping you from following Jesus, which is more valuable, cut it off. Your eye, of course, is significant to you, very valuable to you, but if it's, causing you to sin in some way that you're looking upon something and it's drawing you away from God, spiritually speaking, you need to cut that out of your life because you see the alternative to that isn't simply a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, it's hell. Now hell has been getting a lot of press lately. Newsweek, a couple of weeks ago, had a whole cover story on hell. in fact, there was one article about hell that was really fairly good in there. I, was, I wasn't surprised because actually the, whoever the editor is for Newsweek, Kenneth Woodard, I believe his name is, often writes well about the faith. You got to read him So it's, it's not quite what I would say, but it's, it's, it's not bad for Newsweek. Um, but he talked about hell as a logical necessity. That is to say, if there's going to be justice, there must be something to hell. Because hell isn't mentioned in Scripture as that which shows God to be cruel, but to be just. It isn't that which shows God to be unloving, but God to be righteous and, and holy. And though we may not spend a great deal of time dwelling on hell, there are countless millions who will dwell there for real. And Jesus says, come, be my disciple, come follow me and so he says to them come then at the end of all of that he has these very interesting words in verses 49 and 50 he says all right everyone will be salted with fire salt is good but how, but if it loses its saltiness how can you make it salty again now that's the question of the morning what does that mean why is it that after talking about all of this stuff it makes, it, it makes sense to us as, Being servants of God, we understand all of that, we understand at least that's what we're to be. But why is it then Jesus ends with his word, everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with each other. What did he mean by that? So how shall we approach it? Well first, humbly, because if you read anything in the history of the interpretation of this passage on this, everyone says this is a very difficult saying. To figure out what it is that Jesus meant. So we're going to take this very humbly. A wiser pastor would probably skip it. But I always think if I can get 10% of what Jesus might mean by something, that's probably better than 99% about what anybody else could mean by something. So as long as we don't err, as long as we don't say something that's heretical and false, if we can just grab a hold of a bit of this, it has to be a blessing to us. Now think with me. We've got about... Just only about an hour left. Um, Think with me. (laughs) Think with me about this. Notice, Jesus has been speaking about fire. And then, in verse 50, he speaks about salt. So he's transitioning, if you will, for this idea of fire down to this idea of salt. First is that the fire of hell is bad, it destroys eternally. You you want to stay away from that, okay? So his first uh, reference to fire is that it's bad, it destroys, it's punishment, it's hell. And then he moves down to the end of verse 50 and he's talking about salt which is good. We're to have this salt in ourselves. And then there's this transition verse, this bridge between the two, which is verse 49, where he says that everyone will be salted with fire. So we go from fire to salt and fire to salt. We go bad fire, interesting fire, to salt, which is good. Okay, so that's kind of the transition. And it seems that Jesus is sort of playing off of that because he's got our attention about fire in the one hand, and then he moves us down to salt. So the question is, why and how does that help us? Well, when Jesus says, "salt salted with fire, he's likely to be referring, as I just glimpsed at us last week, just mentioned, he's likely to be referring to Old Testament sacrifices. Now, why do I say that? Well, first, because Jesus is talking about being a servant, and servants must sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his glory. Jesus sacrificed his own life. If you and I are going to serve each other, if we're going to serve each other, we're really going to love each other as Jesus calls us to love each other, if we're really going to serve each other, it requires sacrifice. It requires perhaps sacrifice of even good things, generically good things, just time and energy that we could spend in a number of different ways. But if we could spend time and energy on ourselves or we could spend that time and energy Serving each other. And so we're sacrificing one for the other. There's a sacrifice involved. There's the sacrifice that we go through of our own selfishness and our own pride where we have to put it to death, where we're cutting off feet and hands and plucking out eyes and so forth. That kind of sacrifice in order to be able to serve. Now that doesn't mean there isn't service with joy, but there's service, and service requires sacrifice. To give up your own rights to tend to the needs of another. So Jesus is talking about sacrifice. And so he had been talking about fire, destructive. He'd been talking about sacrifice. And so now he kind of puts all of that together when he uses this phrase, everyone will be salted with fire, because in the Old Testament, sacrifices, many of them, were burned. There was a fire, an altar. If you went to church in the Old Testament and you went to the temple, uh, there wouldn't be a pulpit. There would be an altar that you would see first. There would be a brazen altar with fire in it to burn sacrifices. There's a sacrifice of burning and you know what you did with every sacrifice whether it was a burnt sacrifice or not a burnt sacrifice You seasoned it with salt Salt went on every sacrifice according to Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 So if you're a priest and someone brought you some grain you would pour salt on it and offer it to the Lord if someone brought you a, 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 a beef, <laughs> brought you uh, some meat, you would pour salt on it and you would sacrifice it, burn it up to the Lord. Why salt? Well, salt, they tell us, is indestructible, essentially. And so that in the midst of even this sacrifice, salt still remains salt. And salt, having this sense of permanence about it, gave rise to an expression that's even used by God in the Old Testament when he talks to his people and he says, I have made a covenant of salt with you. Now why would he say that? He would say that because he says, my promises to you, my covenant with you, my relationship with you is permanent. It can't be dissolved, so it's a covenant of salt. It's necessary for you and no one can break it. And so he says now, salted with fire, it means yes there is a fire, but that fire comes from God. And that fire is in essence that salty fire. And in the midst of that salty fire that comes from God is God's promise. He says, I am with you, and this work of mine in you shall be permanent. Because we also know that salt keeps meat, for instance, from decaying. It preserves. And He says, my covenant with you will last, and I will through it preserve you. I will keep you. So he says, by the way, I know he's talking about fire, but let me tell you something else. That everyone will be salted with fire. That there is a fire, there is, that comes from God. And that fire that comes from God to his very own, he salts us with because of relationship with him. Because you see, salt, because fire not only destroys, but fire also purifies. Turn to First Peter in chapter 1. First Peter in chapter one, in verse six, Peter writes, in this you greatly rejoice. Now in what do you greatly rejoice? Well, in your salvation, that's what he's just said. Salvation is great, it comes from God, and so he says in verse six, first Peter chapter one, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now that little word trial... Um comes from a Greek word that means to ignite a fire. Thus, in some translations, it's translated fiery trial. Right? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come that so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, there is a fire of destruction, but there is also a fire that refines, that fire that comes from God. It refines us. We sing a song every once in a while called, Refiner's Fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Right? Refiner's Fire. My heart's what now, if you sing that, that's what I call a confessional song, Because the first time I sing that through, I usually sing it real quietly, because I know, deep down in the recesses of my guts, I do want to be holy, but I also know it's, that's not as pure a desire as I would like to be. So I first, as I sing that through, I, I pray that God will purify my heart, even so I can sing it one more time. People say, "Why do you sing these songs twice?" Well, first time through, I often confess. Second time through, I sing. Really, that's all. So second, refiner, purify my heart, we say. May it be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Refiners fire. That's this fire, you see. These trials, they come to us. And what do they do? When they come, they come, these fires that we salted with, not assaulted by. It's not what God is doing to us. It's what God is doing for us. These trials come. We're salted by them. So they come so we know they come from God. We come, they come, we know that what God is trying to do here is to burn up our sin so that what remains is evidence of his grace. So Jesus says, listen, in the context of your life, in the context of being a servant, you know what's significant? You're going to feel the fire of sacrifice. But don't worry, that fire of sacrifice is from me. I'm salting you with that fire of sacrifice. It comes from me. It says, my relationship with you is really permanent. It's really sure. This is preserving you. This is keeping you. All of these things. Because you know, every opportunity we have to serve another, especially serve those that aren't easy to serve. Every opportunity like that becomes for us a fiery trial against our own sin. In fact, so much so that when I am faced with certain types of service, I can hear the sizzle. And I can feel it. And I know that when there are some times that I'm to serve, and I know I'm to serve. I'm to serve by forgiving another. I'm to serve by not holding a grudge against another. I'm to serve by laying aside the fact that I think they've taken advantage of me i'm laying aside the very fact i don't enjoy being around them i lay aside the fact that i this just isn't convenient and i have other things that i had planned to do today that would be much more fun than this and every time one of those opportunities comes you see whether it's serving your husband or your wife or your child or your parent or a friend or a roommate whether it's taking your turn at nursery duty whether it's participating in other, setting up chairs, other ministries of the church even. You can feel the sizzle. You know what's going on. You know the purifying process is happening and God is saying, will you be my disciple? Will you follow me? You think this is a big deal, look at the cross. And we know that it's happening. But we also know that that fire is something we're being salted with. That is, it comes from God. And what's left over after everything else burns up? The salt. So Jesus says, after the fire's come, have this salt in you that remains. So what's that salt? What's the salt that's in us that remains? The salt that's in us that remains is, yes, the very grace of God that's been working in us. But in this context, the grace of God that's been working in us is the very character of Christ. His humility. His compassion, his gentleness, his kindness, his patience, his making himself lower so that serving gets done. And that's what God calls us to. He says, I want you to serve the other. And what does that mean? When the fire, when the opportunity comes, when the trial comes, when the difficulty comes, when you're saying, I really don't want to do this, understand that's God who's knocking at your door. That's God who's making that request. Will you welcome him or not? Will you serve him? And you're saying, I don't want to do this. And it's like he picks us up as little salt shakers and he says, Anything there? Any salt there? Any Jesus there? Any likeness to my son there? He salts us with fire, so he says, have this salt in you. And you know what the application of that is, you know what the end result is. that is. He says, have this salt in you and live at peace with each other. You see, this whole situation started with a group of twelve men who weren't at peace with each other. They were arguing with each other about who was the greatest among them. It's not a peaceful conversation. They were arguing about who was the greatest among them, and so now Jesus is essentially saying, is there any salt there? That is to say, is there anyone who has the character of Christ there? Is there anyone who has the salt of Christ there? Who has the servant heart of Christ there? And the answer was at that moment in time, no. They all wanted to be the greatest, that is to say, to be elevated above the other. And he says, if you want to be great, become last and serve all. And requests will come. Trials will come. Difficulties will come. And he says, What I want you to do is, I want you to cut off your hand if that keeps you from loving your brother. I want you to cut off your foot if that keeps you from loving your brother. I want you to pluck out your eye if that keeps you from loving your brother. Because what's really important here is that through that fiery trial, through that difficult decision, through that opportunity to serve, you end up being servants of others and please understand when Jesus uses the word fire that's a real word don't expect this to be easy don't expect not to feel the burning in your soul when you want to be selfish and not serve but don't stop there and say well I feel this feeling I better not do it. no put it to death to step out and serve See, if Jesus were here he wouldn't ask where's the money, show me the money he would say show me the salt let's pray Father in heaven I pray for for me and for us Father we can very glibly call ourselves disciples of your son our Lord Jesus Christ and that we are but yet, please help us to know what that means and to be able to live it out so that we love. Lord Jesus, you said this. By this, they will all know that you are my disciples, that you have love for each other. I pray that would be our mark. That that would be what gives us away. That would be what tells the tale. Oh, yes. Yes. They're Christians. They're disciples of Jesus. None of them is uppity. They're all humble servants, lovers of each other. May it be said about us, look how they love each other. So Father, I would pray that as you salt us with fire, that we have that salt within us, that very grace that shows that we are yours and yours alone and that you preserve us through this fire, and you enable us to show the very character of Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind um, the parents of our parents' meeting this evening at 7, women of the church tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, for Sundays on Monday, college students, open swim. Uh, tomorrow at 9, so just be aware of the various activities coming. I remind you, too, that elders will be available to pray in the office area, so please take advantage of that. If you need someone to pray with you, they have been, we believe, called by God for that very purpose, so do that. Then finally, the response to the benediction is this one. I will follow Jesus. Amen. Now, when you say, I will follow Jesus, obviously, that's a profession of faith. You nor I expect of each other perfection in following Jesus. Uh, if we expected that on this day, we would realize we had all died and gone to heaven. So we don't expect it, but it's a profession of faith. It's really what's in our hearts. We do desire to follow Jesus. You want to be a disciple of Jesus. I will follow Jesus. And you understand what that means. It means to humble yourself, and to serve, to love each other. And when you say amen, you're saying yes. That's this, That seals the deal. That's my... Stamp to say amen. Yes, so be it. So please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I will follow Jesus. Amen. Amen.